Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Titus chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. This morning, we will be concluding our consideration of the short epistle of Paul to Titus, Pastor Titus, as he was laboring on the island of Crete. So Titus chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word given to us this morning. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, growing up in Minnesota, my dad did and still does tap his own maple trees every spring and he makes his own maple syrup. And to do this, you have to collect lots of sap and you boil that sap down until you get a desired consistency, which then is your maple syrup. And it takes something like 40 gallons of sap to make just one gallon of maple syrup. So we have been considering the epistle of Paul to Titus, and he has given us many imperatives in this very short epistle. Imperatives that are very useful for how we should think about life within the church. Now, if you were to take all of these imperatives and put them in a metaphorical pot, as it were, and you were to boil them down, what is that central imperative that you'd be left with? What would be your, your maple syrup, as it were? Well, I'd like to make the argument that it would be chapter, or, uh, chapter 3, verse 14. As Paul tells Titus to tell the Cretans to learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of, of urgent need. And Paul literally is saying here that the, the Cretans are to busy themselves with good works. This is at bottom what you'd have if you were to boil down all of the imperatives that Paul has given us in this short epistle. The theme of good works has been one of the central themes that Paul has focused upon in Titus. If you remember back in chapter 1, Paul gave a number of qualifications that elders and pastors are to exhibit. Or to put it another way, he, he told us the type of good works that elders and pastors are to display. In chapter 2, he told us the type of good works that older men, older women, younger men, younger women, Titus as a pastor, and even slaves and bondservants are to display. In chapter 3, Paul instructed us in terms of, of, of the good works that we are to display towards outsiders. As we are to obey pagan authorities and show courteous and gentleness to all people, specifically non-Christians. 
And so chapter 3, verse 14 is a fitting capstone to this theme of good works that Paul has been driving home throughout these three chapters. Now notice in verse 14, Paul, Paul doesn't just say that we are to be a people who are devoted to good works. No, he says that we are to learn to devote ourselves to good works. Now when Paul references learning, he is not referring to a one-time action. Rather, he's referring to an ongoing, continuous habit. We are to be lifelong learners of good works. This is what Paul has in mind when he says that we are to learn to devote ourselves to good works. And this concept of learning good works is a very helpful concept for us to think about. If we're honest with ourselves, most of the decisions that we face in life are not clear cut black and white decisions over sin and righteousness, obedience and disobedience. Rather, most of the decisions that we face in life call for wise judgments in absence of biblical commands. For instance, how best do we address conflict or tension within a relationship, whether that be in a marital relationship, a friendship, or any other relationship that we have in life? How do we parent children of various or of different temperaments and personalities? How do we exercise wise leadership in the workplace so as to not make mountains out of anthills, but yet still stand upon convictions? How do we honor authority figures who share radically different convictions, beliefs, and moral systems than we have? Again, these are difficult decisions that aren't clearly black and white, but call for a lot of wisdom and call for us to be patient and lifelong learners, studious learners of good works. You'll notice that Paul also gives us the purpose here. He says that the purpose of this learning, of this education, is that we might be able to help cases of urgent need. Now, what were these urgent needs that Paul is referring to here in Titus chapter 3. Well, if you look at the preceding verse, Paul says to the Cretans, do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they lack nothing. Zenos and, and Apollos, they were uh, gospel missionaries, gospel workers, Christian um, laborers, and they were going through Crete, and thus they would have been in need of hospitality and provisions, and the Cretans were to meet this need, or these needs. Now, of course, the assumption behind what Paul is saying here is that the Cretans also are to learn to devote themselves to good works in order to, to love and serve their neighbor during ordinary times as well. Not just in cases of urgent need, but also during ordinary times. Therefore, the question that I'd like us to, to focus upon this morning is how? How do we learn to devote ourselves to good works? This is a very important question, a question that we may not reflect upon often enough. How, how do we become people who are marked by love for others? How do we teach our children to be not obsessed about themselves, infatuated with themselves, but actually to consider the needs of others greater than their own? How do we become this kind of people? How do we learn to devote ourselves to good works? Well, I'd like to allow the book of Titus as a whole to answer this question. And the book of Titus as a whole tells us that we are to master four lessons, four lessons in order uh, to be able to devote ourselves to good works. 
And the first thing that we need to know, the first thing that we need to learn is the virtue of self-control. We are to learn to devote ourselves to good works by first learning the virtue of self-control. Now, this theme or this virtue of self-control has been a nail that Paul has repeatedly hit throughout this entire epistle. You may remember back in Titus 1 verse 8 when Paul is giving these various qualifications for elders and pastors within the church. He says that an overseer or an elder must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Then in Titus 2, Paul is addressing every adult demographic within the church. And he says that older men are to be self-controlled. The same word that he used in Titus 1 verse 8. Then he says that younger women are to be what? Self-controlled. Which implies that older women also are to be self-controlled because older women are the mentors of younger women. And last of all, Paul says that the only virtue that younger men are to focus upon is what? Self-control. And so self-control is the dominant virtue, the most important virtue that Paul uh, commends in this short epistle. In fact, if you were to ask the Apostle Paul, what is the one thing that I should focus upon in the moral life? I think he would say, in light of this epistle, self-control. Now, what is self-control? Paul clearly sees self-control as a very important virtue in the life of a Christian. What is it? Well, first of all, self-control is uh, the ability to control our natural and sinful inclination to obsess over ourselves and turn a blind eye to the needs of our neighbor. Self-control is the ability to control our natural inclination to obsess about ourselves, our own needs, desires, and wants, and to turn a, a, a uh, then consequently to, to, to not turn a blind eye to the needs of our neighbor. We need self-control to think of others more highly than ourselves because that does not come naturally to us who are sinners. Uh, we need self-control to think of others as, or to love our neighbor as ourselves. Calvin, as he comments on this command to love our neighbor as ourselves, says that if people were less devoted to themselves, there would be great love and harmony amongst us all. Is that not true? If we were less devoted to ourselves, there would be great love and harmony amongst us all, whether it be in churches, families, or communities. And we need self-control to be less devoted to ourselves and to think about the needs of others. Furthermore, self-control also refers to the avoidance of extremes. Self-control refers to the avoidance of extremes. Every virtue is defined as the median between two poles or two extremes. And so if you take the virtue of courage, courage is the median between, on the one hand, rashness or recklessness, and on the other hand, fear and timidity. And we all are prone to certain extremes. Take any virtue in life, we're prone to certain extremes. And so self-control is the avoidance of those extremes. Thus, as you can see, self-control is this virtue that really applies to every situation in life and to every virtue. The only way in which you will be marked by all of the virtues, temperance, patience, joy, hope, fortitude, is if you have the virtue of self-control. And so the first thing we need to know if we want to be a people marked by a life of good works is we need, we need to know 
how to develop the virtue of self-control. If we don't develop this virtue, then we're going to make very little progress in the Christian life, very little progress in, uh, in the path of good works to which we are called. And so we are to learn. We are to learn the virtue of self-control. Well, second, the second lesson that we need to learn is um, to appreciate the wisdom that spans generations. We need to learn to appreciate the wisdom that spans generations. Now, this point comes from Titus chapter 2. Now, in Titus chapter 2, as I've already referred to, uh, Titus, or Paul is, is addressing or is telling Titus to address every adult demographic within the church. And Paul envisions that the covenant community would be a community in which younger generations are under the tutelage of older generations. Thus, how do we learn to devote ourselves to good works? Well, according to Titus chapter 2, uh, Paul, Paul's answer would be, find an older, mature Christian in the church and learn from them, watch them, imitate them. In fact, Aristotle, who himself was no Christian, he said, the way in which you become a virtuous person is by finding a virtuous person and imitating them. And so Paul thinks it's very important that we are a part of a local expression of God's kingdom here on earth. Sadly, I think many people today, especially younger generations, are influenced more by uh, people online, podcasters, blogsters, influencers, than the people within their local church, pastors, elders, mature Christians. I think this in part is, is because of the celebrity culture that, that marks not only our culture at large, but also evangelicalism more specifically. And thus Paul here is calling us to be counter-cultural. Call here, Paul here is calling us to be a part of a local church and to submit to that local church as a vehicle of transformation. What this means is that we're not just to submit to the discipline of elders within the church, but more broadly, we are to submit to the entire body as a vehicle of transformation. More often than not, people view the church as merely a platform for their individual self-expression, which is how most people in our culture view institutions in our day. However, Paul here envisions that we view the church as a covenant community, as a vehicle of transformation. We are molded, we are shaped by those uh, with whom we share life with. And Paul is telling us here that it's very important that we embrace a community, an intergenerational community within God's covenant. This learning that Paul speaks about is not a self-study course. It's, it's an in-person, face-to-face class that has a, a cohort model. We, we learn good works as a community, not as individual Lone Ranger Christians. And so the second way in which we learn to devote ourselves to good works is by being a part of the covenant community of God in a local way. Well, the third way in which we learn to devote ourselves to good works is by learning to appreciate the ordinary. Now, one one reflection we should have as we come to the conclusion of this epistle is that many of the good works that Paul speaks about in this epistle are quite ordinary. You think of the qualifications for elders in Titus chapter 1. Paul does not say that pastors and elders need to have dynamic and charismatic personalities to win a crowd, but rather they are to be faithful men of virtue who hold fast 
to the trustworthy word as taught, summarized, and confessed in the Reformed Confessions. That's quite ordinary. It's kind of vanilla. Or you think of Titus chapter 2, when Paul is speaking again about how every adult demographic within the church should live. He, he merely lists common virtues that were not really that unique to Christianity. These were virtues that many pagan authors talked about. They, they are rooted in God's natural law. In fact, in Titus chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, Paul says, Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Paul is not being revolutionary here at all. Paul does not tell slaves that they, they need to start a revolt. They need to, to petition Pastor Titus to draft an appeal to, to Caesar to try to eradicate the institution of slavery. Instead, Paul, while denouncing slavery as a vile practice, is calls upon slaves to embrace their current station of life in order that they may adorn the gospel in the eyes of their unbelieving masters. This is the ordinary, ordinary and faithful kind of life that Paul envisions for each of us in our Christian lives. And these verses in verses 9, these verses 9 through 10 also can apply to our common vocations during the week. One, of the, one point that Luther, Martin Luther made in the Reformation was that common vocations are indeed vocations, callings, legitimate callings from God to glorify him and serve and bless our neighbor. This was a pretty controversial point in the 16th century because before this, really the only legitimate vocations or callings from God were callings to the monastery or callings to the priesthood. But Luther said, no, every, every individual, even the most ordinary individual doing the most ordinary job has a calling, a legitimate calling from God to serve and bless his neighbor. One author puts it this way, God descends to serve humanity through our vocations. So instead of seeing good works as our works for God, they are now to be seen as God's work for our neighbor, which God performs through us. So essentially, what, what's being said here is that we are God's instruments to bless our neighbors and display God's common goodness and benevolence towards humanity through the very routine and everyday tax, tasks which we perform each week. Uh, Luther went on to speak about how God masks himself behind, behind our common vocations as we seek to serve and bless our neighbor. Uh, we are instruments of God's ordinary providence, ordinary provision to those around us. We are to embrace these ordinary callings. We aren't to despise them and only seek uh, the extraordinary in life, but we are to embrace the ordinary vocations that God has given us. This is one of the ways in which we learn to devote ourselves to good works. Well, last of all, we learn to devote ourselves to good works by learning to rest in God's grace. When, we have, when, when grace is, is the root, good fruits will be the fruit. This, in fact, is the most important lesson that we are to learn when it comes to living a life of good works. We are to rest in God's grace. Notice how Paul ends this epistle. He ends with a benediction. He says, grace be with you all. In the same breath in which he says in verse 14 that we are to learn to devote ourselves to good works, he gives us this benediction of God's grace which reminds us that 
Grace and good works are always to be kept together. Furthermore, Paul bookends this epistle with blessings of God's grace. In Titus 1, verse 4, Paul opened up this letter and said, Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The salutation, this benediction of the grace of God. And then he concludes by saying, Grace be with you all. This uh, further reminds us that we are to pursue a life of good works only from a foundation of the grace of God. This is part of the reason why in our liturgy we open and end with God's blessing. We hear God's salutation at the beginning as he calls us into worship, and then we also conclude with God's benediction as he has, his grace has the last word when we gather together for worship. And so we are called to be a people who, yes, pursue a life of good works, but pursue a life of good works only upon the foundation of the grace of God. Now, before we begin to, to consider what it means to rest in the grace of God, what is God's grace? Well, Paul defined God's grace very clearly for us in this epistle. Recall what Paul says in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. He says, For the grace of God has appeared. When and where has the grace of God appeared? In the incarnation of Christ. We experience the grace of God through a person, namely Jesus Christ. God's grace is capital P personal. It's defined through the flesh of Christ. And so we who believe in Christ are called uh, are referred to as those who are in Christ. We who believe in Christ are those who belong body and soul, life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, the way in which we experience the grace of God is only through union with our risen Lord and Savior. Now, as we are connected to the font of all grace, namely Jesus, we also are the recipient then of the gifts of Christ or the gifts of grace. When Christ ascended into heaven and poured out his spirit, it was like the, the breaking open of a great pinata of gifts upon his church. And Paul speaks this way. For instance, in Titus chapter 3, verse 8, he says that we have been justified by grace. Meaning justification is one of those gifts of grace that Christ accomplished for us through his earthly ministry. And in that same passage, Paul refers to the gifts of regeneration and renewal as the Holy Spirit changes our sinful nature and makes it possible for us to imperfectly obey and please our holy and pure God. And Paul also speaks about adoption, that by grace we are heirs of eternal life. And so what is grace? Well, grace is defined in the incarnation of Jesus, but it also refers to the gifts of Christ, the gifts of grace that we have in our regeneration, justification, and adoption. Now, why is resting in God's grace so important, so important if we want to live a life of, of good works? Well, it's only when we are resting upon the foundation of God's grace that good works are actually even possible. Apart from the grace of God, it is absolutely impossible to do any work that is remotely called good or pleasing or acceptable in the eyes of God. 
I've used this illustration before, but imagine there's a man who, who judges art as a hobby or a living, and, and when he goes to art competition, he judges art according to the strict principles of art. But in his office, his favorite piece of art is a picture that his three-year-old daughter drew for him. Now, if he looks at that picture that his daughter drew for him, as a judge, it's a terrible piece of art. It's worthy of the garbage can. But if he views that piece of that picture as a father, he delights in it. It's his favorite drawing in the world. Well, in a similar way, if God views our works as a judge, there is no hope for us. Every work that we do is completely defiled and tainted with sin. But if God views our works as a father, then he delights in our imperfect good works as that father delights in the picture of his three-year-old daughter. And that's why it's absolutely crucial that we are adopted by grace into the family of God because apart from that benefit, our works will never be pleasing or accepted in the eyes of our God. Well, what does it mean then to rest, to actually rest in God's grace? Well, in part, it means that we look to the gospel, we look to the grace of God for our motivation to live a life of good works. We, 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 we look to the grace of God to be our fuel and our engine in our Christian lives. And this is what Paul says in Titus 2.11 as he says that, God, that God's grace trains us. It trains us to do what? To put off and put on. To put off vice and put on virtue. If we're honest with ourselves, our natural inclination in life is to be introspected. To obsess about our feelings. Our feelings might be of low self-esteem where we feel inadequate, we feel insecure, uh, we might feel despairing, or we might actually be infatuated with ourselves and pride and arrogance and, and narcissism. But either way, the gospel comes to us and says that we are not saved by works done by us in righteousness, but only according to God's mercy. The gospel frees us from thinking that our works or even our feelings play a part in maintaining a relationship with God. The gospel frees us from being introspective and the gospel is the only thing that actually makes us extrospective. Meaning, it, it frees us from, from, uh, from turning in on ourselves and causes us to turn the eyes of our hearts outside of ourselves to the good of our neighbor. And we begin to actually serve and love our neighbor, not as a means of bolstering our self-image, but for their own sake. We desire to focus upon the glory of God and not our glory. And we desire to find our life, not in ourselves, but in the font of all grace, namely Jesus Christ. And so, are you resting in God's grace? Of course, we know that we are called to do uh, uh, to, to live a moral life, but are you doing so from from the foundation of the grace of God? Or are you standing upon some other foundation? Are you filling up upon uh, your own efforts and the strength of your own will? Or are you fueling, uh, fueling up upon God's grace given to you in the gospel? Well, according to the book of Titus, how, how do we devote ourselves? How do we learn to devote ourselves to good works? Well, Paul is very clear. He tells us that we need to learn the virtue of self-control. Paul tells us that we need to be a part of an intergenerational covenant community. Paul tells us that we need to learn uh, to embrace the ordinary callings in life. And most importantly, we are to do all of these things as we rest upon the foundation of God's grace in the gospel.